0: Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia.
1: China does see the economic potential of India's growth story. But the question is whether China thinks that the strategic gains from having a military relationship with Pakistan are stronger than any potential economic gains from India.
2: I don't think China will be able to balance between India and Pakistan in the short run, but I think they have a vision. They have a long-term vision that they have to have balanced relations with both countries, and the process will start, I think, very soon.
0: In this episode, China's enduring relationship with Pakistan and what it means for India. Here to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. The leaders of Pakistan often describe their relationship with China with gushing hyperbole, higher than the Himalayas, deeper than the oceans, and sweeter than honey. The Chinese, in turn, refer to Pakistan as Iron Brother Pakistan. The bond between these two nations, seemingly so incompatible in their political ideologies and views on Islam, is an enduring one. So what benefits do China and Pakistan get from their close ties? How does Pakistan fit into Xi Jinping's geopolitical ambitions for China? And how do the deepening military and economic ties between China and Pakistan affect that other vital player in the region, India? Political scientist Dr Pradeep Tanisha from the University of Melbourne's School of Social and Political Sciences and Dr Zahid Ahmed from the Alfred Deakin Institute at Deakin University join us in the studio to look at the nature of the China-Pakistan alliance and its implications for India. Welcome to Ear to Asia, Pradeep and Zahid.
2: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: If we're talking about China and Pakistan and the impact of those two countries on India, you can't really get a better example of the geopolitical tensions Involving those three countries than the recent crisis between India and Pakistan. It's a good place to start. In February this year, India launched airstrikes on militant camps in Pakistan in retaliation for an attack that killed 40 Indian troops in Kashmir a few weeks earlier. Now, the crisis was diffused, but the reason we're starting our conversation here is because the leader of the terrorist group that was responsible for the initial attack has been protected by China hasn't he, Pradeep? Can you take up the story?
1: Yeah. Masood Azhar is the individual uh, that you mentioned.
0: And he's the leader of Jashay Muhammad. Okay.
1: He's the leader of Jashay Muhammad, and Jashay Muhammad claimed responsibility for the attack on the 14th of February in Pulwama, in Jammu and Kashmir. Indian government has tried for a long time in the Security Council to have this individual proscribed under the UN 1267 Committee. And three times in the past, India has failed to get Masood Azhar banned by the United Nations. The Jasha Muhammad organization is already banned by the United Nations. But its leader, he is not covered by that. So India has tried in the past three times, failed largely because of China. Every time this issue has come up before the committee, China has put a so-called technical hold. In other words, China says we need more information, we need more time. And in the end, it doesn't lead to any any decision. And this was the fourth time after the Pulwama attack that again it went to the committee. And on just the final day, China again put a technical hold. But recently there have been some indications from at least the Chinese ambassador in New Delhi addressing an Indian gathering. He said that, trust me, this issue will be resolved. So I'm looking forward to see how exactly this will be resolved.
0: At the same time, it obviously hasn't been yet. So Zahid, why does China protect Masuda
2: it's an interesting question, but perhaps I would first relate to Pradeep's uh, point of view in relation to what Chinese ambassador there has uh, recently said. Things have changed a lot with regard to... China's position on protecting certain terrorist organizations or individuals in Pakistan. My understanding after speaking to a lot of people in Pakistan is that this is perhaps one of the very last times China has given Pakistan any favor like this one. Uh, And why do they protect is because of their geostrategic relationship with Pakistan, which is not just, you know, recent. It's been uh, already 70 years of relationship between both countries. So I think Pakistani prime minister on this occasion asked for a favor from China in this regard, because his government is very new, dealing with a lot of other challenges at the domestic level. And he needs a bit of more time to deal with this issue. And I've spoken to people who are in the Pakistan parliament. I see the political will there. They want to deal with this mess. And of course, it's going to take time. It's not that easy. The government is not even one year old.
0: Why is it not that easy, given that the, and we'll look at the history of the relationship with China in a minute, but in terms of this terrorist organisation, as Pradeep said, the organisation itself is already banned. What's so messy and complicated about also banning its leaders?
2: You know, the organisation is banned at the international level. But when you focus at the level of what's happening within Pakistan, it's. I, I don't see them being banned in terms of reality because, you know, their leader is there. Last time he was reported living in Karachi, visiting hospitals in Karachi and all that. Uh, so they they have been enjoying this certain amount of freedom. And there's historical evidence behind it. Since the 80s, you know, the Pakistan armed forces and the government agencies, they worked very closely with many of these groups. So it's not just, you know, like the Taliban, but certain terrorist organizations that are uh, based in Pakistan and Pakistan's, you know, foreign minister is on record saying that Masood lives in Pakistan and Jaisa Mohammed is based in Pakistan. What I'm trying to say is that, you know, that's one reality. And in Pakistan, another reality is in terms of the civil-military relationship. Military still is a very, very key stakeholder when it comes to the foreign policy and when it comes to national security matters as well. Within that is the issue of relationship with a lot of such groups. And such individuals, it's not easy for any civilian government to bypass the military institutes to deal with these militants or terrorist organizations. They have to go through the military. And that's what Imran Khan has been trying to do. He wants more time to have a dialogue with the military and come to some kind of a national consensus in dealing with this This problem is very big. You know, Pakistan itself has suffered a loss of close to 60,000 lives only in the past, you know, 10 to 12 years. So I think the, the government knows it very well that it can't just go like this when you want to open your doors to the rest of the world in terms of tourism, in terms of investment. For example, Mahathir uh, Muhammad was in Pakistan to sign many of the economic cooperation agreements. So there are opportunities, but you can only exploit opportunities if there is security at home.
1: As far as the support of the Pakistani state to these groups is concerned, I think Zahid is right in terms of the number of people who have been killed in Pakistan in terrorist attacks. And that's a figure that the Pakistan authorities often cite in their dealings with Western powers in India at the United Nations. But there's also this tendency to make a distinction between a good terrorist and a bad terrorist. So those uh, terrorist organizations and individuals who fight in Pakistan's frontier areas, in Pakistan's periphery, they are the bad terrorists. But then those who engage in... Uh, you know, terrorist activities on the border with India or in Jammu and Kashmir, they are often protected because they are supposed to be serving certain strategic ends of the Pakistani military establishment. It is true that Pakistan has been itself a victim of terrorism, but at the same time there is this Frankenstein, particularly in southern Punjab, which has been created, which operates largely against India. And they are considered to be worthy of a protection from the Pakistani state. I also wanted to say something about China's reasons. I mean, Zayed has very nicely explained uh, Pakistan's reason for and the complexity and complexity for Pakistan. But at the same time, I think we shouldn't forget that China has its own reasons for going soft on some of these elements in Pakistan. So it's not just doing a favour? Just, not just doing a favour to Pakistan, although there is an element of that, but there is also China's self-interest in this. For example, there seems to be some sort of understanding between the Chinese government and Uh, militant extremist groups within Pakistan. Because remember, China has opened channels of communication with not only the Pakistan military, of course, but also the Taliban, the militant organizations, the fundamentalist political parties in Pakistan. And their main interest, particularly in dealing with the fundamentalist elements or the, the militant elements, is to make sure that they work with China, they cooperate with China in preventing terrorist attacks on Chinese soil across the border in Xinjiang. So they work with these organizations because they know that they can actually make difficulties for China. So they protect them as part of a compact whereby they will not carry out any attacks or will not help people, the Uyghurs, for example, who agitate against Chinese interests. So there is a self-interest that China has too.
0: So, if we can look at the actual relationship between China and Pakistan, and as I heard, as you said, it goes back, I mean, well before China became an economic superpower. In fact, bilateral ties, I think, first started in the 1950s. Yeah,
2: 1949, to be precise. But since China has become, you know, one of the leading economic powers in the world, which is looking for some kind of uh, political influence, uh, not only in its neighbourhood, but countries that are far off in Africa and Latin America as well. Stay with a
0: little bit of history before we look at where we are today. The history between Pakistan and China and the relationship uh, over those decades, what was the two countries' getting from that relationship? Going back to the 50s, the 60s and the 70s, what was Pakistan giving China? What was China giving Pakistan?
2: You know, at the initial stage, I think it was more sort of a diplomatic sport from both sides, both inherited territorial disputes with India. So that was uh, one common sort of agenda that both countries had. Although Pakistan was very much in the Western corridor back then, after signing, you know, these security uh, alliances or treaties with the US. But still Still, when it came to the bilateral level, there was always this level of comfort between China and Pakistan. Although China didn't support directly, it supported morally when Pakistan had its 1965 war with India and then the 1971 that led to the creation of Bangladesh from uh, East Pakistan. So China didn't actually provide that kind of support which Iran provided. So Iran's uh, support was much more substantial. But uh, going back to the history, I think, the narrative and how both countries defined each other's friendship, what kind of language they used. And you talked about, you know, I and brother and all-weather friendship as another one. And these, you know, keywords go back to the very start of their relationship. So if you pick up, you know, speeches from 1950s onwards, these are the very phrases used in there. And growing up in the 80s, I remember, you know, many of the Chinese movies were played on Pakistan TV channel, which was the only TV channel. In those days, so you didn't have a much of a choice. But you know, the relationship, I think, was always very warm. Although, in terms of the practicality, you could see very little in terms of defence cooperation and all of that. That has mainly happened in, in after, more
0: in more recent after, times. But I guess when you, Pradeep, when you look at the two countries, that it, there is a really obvious uh, geopolitical benefit to those two countries being on very good terms, isn't there?
1: There is clearly a strategic dimension to the China-Pakistan relationship. In fact, people-to-people contacts between China and Pakistan are relatively new. I was telling Zahid earlier that when I was a student in Beijing, I was among three Indian students in all of China, and we used to do an experiment. When we met Chinese people, they used to ask us, where are you from? And I used to say, I'm from Pakistan. And my two colleagues would say they're from India, just to see how the Chinese people react. And often the reaction from the Chinese people was, to me, they will say, oh, China and Pakistan are good friends. But when I asked them about what do you know about Pakistan, they actually knew nothing about Pakistan. Whereas when they talked to my other two colleagues and they said they were from India, they in fact knew they had watched more Indian movies. They knew about Indian writers. They were familiar with Indian literature. So as far as natural interest is concerned, people to people, in fact, there was much more between the Chinese people and Indian people than between China and Pakistan. But there was the strategic dimension, particularly after the 1962 India-China war. China decided that it needs to work much more closely with Pakistan. Part of the reason was, of course, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend, that logic. But then gradually the logic extended as India's economy began to grow China feared that India could, in fact, join forces. India, of course, had close relations with the Soviet Union. Later on, India's relationship after 9 11 has moved much closer to the US. So, China has also come to see Pakistan as an asset in terms of tying India down to South Asia, keeping it bogged down in tensions to in its region. India's ambitions. Mm-hmm. To South Asia.
0: So let's look at now China and India, for example, and I am assuming that China's support for a globally recognized leader of a terrorist organization. Is somewhat of a reality check for the
1: Modi government. It is a reality check. And that's why I think, even though India and China have been working fairly cooperatively since April last year when Modi met Xi Jinping and indeed in went to Wuhan. Xi Jinping's
0: hometown. Exactly.
1: In fact, uh, as Xi Jinping has pointed out, that Xi Jinping, China's leader, has left Beijing only twice to meet a foreign leader. And both times, it's been the Prime Minister of India, Modi. First time when Modi went to China, Xi Jinping flew to Xi'an to meet Modi there. And then last year in April, when Modi went to China, they agreed to meet in Wuhan. And I think there's a reason for it. While the realists in Beijing, in the foreign ministry, in the People's Liberation Army... And within the Chinese Communist Party, the realists, of course, value the relationship with Pakistan because they see it as important as a kind of a balancer against India's growing influence. But Chinese politics has become much more diverse now. Although the Chinese Communist Party has a monopoly on power, but at the same time, you have interest groups in China. For example, the state-owned Chinese companies, some of them are very big companies, banks and you know, large railway corporations, they're worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And they themselves have become powerful interest groups in China. And their leaders are also senior leaders of the Chinese Communist Party because each of these state-owned enterprises has a Chinese Communist Party secretary. And if you are the Communist Party secretary of a large state-owned enterprise, you carry a lot of weight. So... When it comes to foreign policy decision-making, you do have these very powerful interest groups, whether it's the CEOs of state-owned companies or the Communist Party secretaries of state-owned companies, but also private companies, people like Jack Ma, for example, from Alibaba. They have become very powerful interest groups who see India as a much more attractive country than Pakistan. A potentially
0: vast market. Perhaps this is a turning point of sorts for the China-India relationship. But before we pursue that, there's another country that we do need to ask about. And that, of course, is the United States and Pakistan. Zahid, so the US established very close financial and military relations with Pakistan during the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. And then, of course, its own occupation of Afghanistan. Can you tell us a little about the relationship with the US then and the relationship with the US now?
2: The U.S. The relationship started soon after Pakistan became an independent state, and then there was the Cold War. And Pakistan's you know military elites, if you look at top journals, they are the ones who have studied in the U.S., who have worked side by side with the U.S. military elites, and they have always been actually uh, you know comfortable in that sort of a relationship. I think things went wrong in Afghanistan on many occasions. So there was not only the issue of drone strikes into Pakistan or how Osama bin Laden was killed so close to the capital of the country. but also... And of
0: course, that operation did not involve the Pakistani military. Very clearly, it was a U.S. Yeah, there
2: are different versions of the story. Um, and also, you know, there were cross-border firings in which, you know, a lot of Pakistani soldiers were killed in tribal areas. And there were few key incidents that led to... This relationship really hitting the rock bottom. Still, economically, uh, Pakistan understands that, you know, United States is the biggest economy of the world. They still are having negotiations with the IMF. But in terms of security, the cooperation is very little, or only in the case of Afghanistan, there is some kind of cooperation there. But China has taken a lead when it comes to now security cooperation. If you measure Pakistan security cooperation with any other country, China is on the top.
0: So has China, do you think, quite deliberately filled a void that has been left by America? Or is it more that this is the natural progression of China's long-standing relationship with it's Pakistan? The
2: later, it's the latter, actually. It's the natural progression where the US, things just went wrong. And at the time of now economic crisis, you know, like Pakistan approached two countries. It was the U.S. for the IMF sort of deal, and it approached China, and of course, it approached Saudi Arabia and the Emirates for some kind of uh, loans to come out of the economic crisis that Pakistan is going through. The countries that warmly addressed Pakistan's requests were China, of course, the first of them, then Saudi Arabia, then the United Arab Emirates. So the U.S. under Trump is a whole different kind of country. You know, foreign policy, American scholars even write about how American foreign policy is faced with numerous challenges. And you look at how they have gone against many of these free trade treaties, for example, I think they're looking at their uh, trade relations with India as well. I don't think anyone can that easily explain what is happening in the US. But from the Pakistan side, I think they are still equally interested in economic relations with both the US and China.
0: What do you think, Pradeep, from China's point of view? Would it not welcome a relatively absent U.S. compared to how it has been in the the past?
1: If you look at it from a Chinese point of view with the U.S. influence in the region, clearly China's strategic ambition is to be the dominant power in Asia, at least as far as this part of the world is concerned, what's traditionally been called the Asia-Pacific. China would like to, as far as possible, Get rid of the U.S. from this region. Dislodge, I think, would be a proper word. Dislodge the U.S. from this region. It's and th- not and that be easy. extends to, to Pakistan exactly. and India, the Indo-Pacific. Exactly. So, Indo-Pacific. China's interest is in dislodging the U.S. from the region. From India's point of view, of course... India doesn't want to see the region to be dominated by any single power, not even the U.S. India is not happy with having any single power, particularly China, dominating the region. So India is in favor of a multipolar Asia rather than an Asia region dominated by any single power. So that becomes the kind of a main point of contention between India and, and China, as far as Pakistan is concerned, because I think what's happened is that China has begun to see Pakistan as much more then an asset in trying to keep India tied down to South Asia. Because in India, scholars used to say that China's Pakistan policy is largely India-centric. I think now it's moved beyond being India-centric because China realizes that if China is going to be the dominant power in the region, it'll have to be able to exert influence, if not control, the Indian Ocean. And having that access through Pakistan to the Indian Ocean, the port of Gwadar, which you know, a number of people have highlighted, is of particular strategic significance to Pakistan, much more than economic significance, because economically, I don't think it makes a big difference because Karachi port already serves most of Pakistan's global trade. So economically, it is not that important. But militarily, Gwadar will become a very important port.
0: You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by political scientists Dr Pradeep Tanija and Dr Zahid Ahmed. We're talking about China's enduring relationship with Pakistan and how it affects India. Pradeep, you've just mentioned, of course, Qadar Port, which is the linchpin of the Belt and Road strategy uh, in Pakistan, specifically what China calls the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. This, of course, is part of this massive initiative by Xi Jinping. How important is it and how big is it in Pakistan?
1: Okay. So China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is a flagship project of the broader Belt and Road Initiative, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, or CPAC, is supposed to be worth about $62 billion in terms of Chinese investments and loans. In fact, a big chunk of it is loans rather than foreign direct investment by China. So there is an economic interest. Obviously, the economic logic of the Belt and Road applies in the case of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Also, Chinese companies are looking for uh, essentially moving their access capacity to other countries in Central Asia and in South Asia. So Pakistan fits in very nicely with that because Chinese companies who were building, who were opening a new power station in China every week, You know, a decade ago. Now they are opening new power stations in Pakistan. They're building new pipelines and new railways. So a lot of the infrastructure work which was going on in China but now has become kind of redundant because China has built so much. There is an excess capacity which China can deploy in countries which are part of the Belt and Road, in Pakistan's case, the China Pakistan Economic Corridor. But there is, I think, a bigger logic which is strategic because. Given the overall size of the Pakistan economy, given the growth rate, the returns on this investment, particularly in the short term, aren't going to be very good. So, for example, the power projects that Chinese companies are building in Pakistan, the power purchase agreements they have signed with the utilities in Pakistan, the prices are very high. And it's unlikely that the Pakistan utilities will actually turn a profit for these companies. But the strategic logic from China's point of view is much stronger because strategic logic means having wide roads So, for example, the Karakoram Highway, which used to be a very narrow road, is being widened as part of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. And rail and road infrastructure is being built, which will make it easier to connect China, Xinjiang province, all the way up to the Indian Ocean port of Gwada. Indeed, it is a corridor. Exactly. It is a corridor. Now, whether it makes economic sense or not, it makes strategic sense for China. And from India's point of view, obviously, India's objections to the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor and the Belt and Road more broadly are based on sovereignty concerns and other. But clearly, there's a strategic logic behind India's objection because India sees this as a threat to India. Zahid,
0: do do you agree that this is uh, much more about strategic interests than necessarily economic interests?
2: The strategic dimensions are already visible, but I would maybe somewhat disagree because, for example, if you look at what Indian media and the US media has been talking about in relation to Gawadar port, the Chinese Navy may use it as a naval base. The likelihood of that happening is very little because they don't need Gawadar for that. There is Pakistan naval base just very close to Gawadar. So why would they get the world's attention to the Gawadar port being used for naval purposes.
0: But, but isn't the argument that they would want their own, just like they've got Djibouti, this would be the second big overseas military base of, of the Chinese forces?
2: I don't think so, because Pakistan Navy will be very much happy to give them their naval base, which is close to that. So that's the reality. For Pakistan, which is you know very weak, militarily comparing to India, you know, if Chinese Navy is going to use any of the bases there, you know, that makes a lot of sense, you know, that sends a message to India. So in terms of, you know, reality, I don't think so they'll have much of a problem in that. The problems, I think, will be greater in terms of, you know, these loans. Uh, the economic side of this whole Belt and Road initiative in Pakistan, because if the Pakistani economy, as Pardeep says, is not able to repay China in, in a short run, I think China is going to be patient for five to six years or 10 years or so. But after that, they would expect you know some kind of return from their investment in Pakistan. That's when I see problems surfacing.
0: And it's, of course, we've seen what, what's happened in Sri Lanka, where indeed the Chinese have taken over the port because Sri Lanka could, keep up with the debt payments. But what about the support within Pakistan for the Belt and Road uh, from the people and their view of the Chinese investment and also from government and opposition and regional governments as well?
2: I was just having a chat with you, Pardeep, before uh, coming here, and we we talked about a lot of these issues. I was just in Pakistan last month. Every time I go there, I see that the space for being critical of China's investment or China's role in Pakistan is uh, diminishing. Uh, There's very little criticism or a productive criticism, I would say, of the Chinese investment there. Of course, there are minority groups that have been talking critically in terms of China-Pakistan economic cooperation, for example in Balochistan, which is the least populated province of the country, but biggest in terms of size. And Gawadar is placed there. And Pakistan is faced with insurgency there for a long time. Those people have natural concerns in relation to disturbances in demographics, for example, if more and more outsiders come and they take up these jobs in the Gwadar port, especially from within Pakistan. But that's not happening because most of the people or the workforce there is Chinese to begin with.
0: Indeed, protected by the Pakistani military.
2: Of course. Pakistan has you know established two regiments comprised of 5,000 soldiers each. Most of them are from the special services group and uh, they take care of the Chinese people. For China, the communication with all these groups, including Baloch insurgents and the people from the right and the extreme left, is to ensure that, you know, their own people are also protected in Pakistan. There are thousands and thousands who are coming every week to Pakistan. There's no exact figure because sometimes they come on Monday and leave on Friday. So it's hard to have an exact sort of uh, estimate of how many Chinese are there in Pakistan at a single point of time. But, you know, there are so many tourists coming in. Last year alone, there were half a million tourists from China to Pakistan, and mainly because they are provided security. You know, Western tourists are not given this much security. For the Chinese people, there is a special protocol.
0: So, so you see no serious questioning of the Chinese investment
1: Absolutely under the
2: Belt and no. Road? Absolutely not.
1: Pretty. This, this, in fact, is been. Um, My sort of quest, I've been trying to find Pakistani scholars who have taken a critical view of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. You do see newspaper reports. So there are some Pakistani media outlets, for example, the Dawn newspaper, which does publish critical reports and investigative reports on China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. But as I had said, the space for criticism in Pakistan of a project that the Pakistan military is so closely linked with the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, has shrunk. In other words, you cannot really thrive professionally by being a critic of China-Pakistan Economic Corridor within Pakistan. In fact, I have seen more Chinese scholars who are critical of China-Pakistan Economic Corridor than Pakistani scholars who are critical of it.
0: There's another aspect to the support too, which is the exports of weapons. And China has supplied Pakistan with weapons for a long time, but the numbers now are quite extraordinary.
1: In fact, China has emerged as a major exporter of weapons now, as you know. And 60% of military exports from China go to Pakistan. So Pakistan has emerged as the largest buyer of Chinese weapons. And why is that in China's interest, given
0: the often unstable nature of, of Pakistani politics?
1: One of the reasons is similar to why the United States sells weapons to its allies. So, for example, between the Australian armed forces and the American armed forces, you also have a lot of American weapons with the Australian armed forces. And that's interoperability. That if you have the same weapons, if you work with the similar weapons, then it's much easier to operate in a conflict situation. China, of course, never says this, that that's the logic, whereas Americans actually say it publicly. But from Chinese point of view, one can see why that would be a motivation but the other thing is that pakistan in the face of sanctions from the us and other western countries you know particularly after 911 and particularly you know in the last 5 years pakistan has begun to see china as a much more trustworthy much more reliable supplier of military weapons uh, than the United States. There is no Congress in China who is saying don't sell weapons to Pakistan. Nobody is objecting to sales of weapons. Pakistan and China have jointly developed, largely Chinese technology, a fighter aircraft J-17, which is being produced in Pakistan. And in fact, there are even the speculation that they might even export it to other countries from Pakistan. So there is growing sort of military cooperation between Pakistan and China. And Pakistan provides a testing ground for Chinese weapons. If Pakistan is buying them, then China would be able to sell them to other countries also. So Pakistan, in a, in a way, has become the first significant buyer of Chinese military hardware.
0: This is a, perhaps a way too simplistic question, but who do you think gets the most out of a China-Pakistan relationship? Pradeep, what's your assessment of winners?
1: I think Pakistan has relied on economic assistance from three main sources. US was a major supporter of Pakistan particularly during the Cold War and all the way up to 9/11. Saudi Arabia has been another major funder of Pakistan. And China has emerged in more recent times as a significant economic backer. And in fact, now there seems to be competition between China and Saudi Arabia because in the face of China's $62 billion loans and investment in the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Recently, when the Saudi Crown Prince, uh, MBS or Mohammed bin Salman, when he visited Pakistan, India and China on the same trip, he committed... 20 billion U.S. dollars worth of investment in Pakistan. And that was a big story. And that resulted as part of a visit by Imran Khan to the Pakistani prime minister to Saudi Arabia and, of course, to China. So in many ways, China has now found that there is actually Saudi Arabia, which is a competitor. Because from a Saudi perspective also, remember, Saudi Arabia is a close ally of the United States. From the Saudi perspective, Pakistan falling into China's camp, Is not in their interest either. So we're going to see this you know, Saudi Arabia kind of becoming a proxy for the United States in trying to counter Chinese influence in Pakistan.
2: It's interesting you say this, because when Mohammed bin Salman visited Pakistan, you know, the investment that he has committed, most of that goes into Gawadar. So it's very complementary to China's overall Belt and Road initiative. And I think Saudis are also playing very smartly. Often there are, have been hiccups between the Saudis and the United States as well. There was the 9-11 report and all of that. And Saudis understand, you know, where they need China as well. They're playing smartly uh, in terms of the geo-economic and geo-strategic uh, aspects of the Middle East that they're going through, the war in Yemen and the, the Middle East. And I think Pakistan has got this big package as a gift for keeping quiet after uh, the assassination of a Saudi journalist, uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Pakistan kept quiet mainly because of its relationship with Saudi Arabia. At any single point, there are 10,000 Pakistani soldiers in Saudi Arabia devoted to the security there. Their big international military alliances, actually uh, headed by a former Pakistani army chief. And they're close to, you know, a million Pakistani workers there, you know, the Pakistani diaspora there. And, you know, Pakistan's nuclear weapon is called an Islamic nuclear weapon, because, you know, most of these rich Muslim countries invested into making that happen, making Pakistan a nuclear country. But going back to China, I think Saudi Arabia is very happy with uh, China taking the lead in uh, investment in Pakistan. And Saudis are actually benefiting from that opportunity, because there's someone else who has actually kickstarted a lot of these projects. So Gawadar is now up and running. And Saudis have just come at the right time to exploit all the benefits from that.
0: So let's go back to the, the point that we we talked about at the very beginning, which was the, the I suppose... China potentially running out of patience, if you like, and what that means for future relations with India. Pradeep, do you think that next time China is asked, if indeed they are asked again, to uh, to veto any banning of a leader of a terrorist organisation, they may not have the same approach? Do you think that their relations and how they perceive India is changing? It is, of course, a massive market. And is, is it considered as a potential partner in the Belt and Road?
1: Uh, Well, as far as the Belt and Road initiative is concerned, India has made it very clear, very plain. In fact, India, after the last Chinese Belt and Road summit that President Xi Jinping hosted in Beijing, India was the first country to come out with a very clear statement of why India was opposed to Belt and Road. And I think there is an understanding in China now that trying to get India to sign up to the Belt and Road initiative is a lost cause. And let's focus on bilateral economic cooperation and the Because they to are part
0: of the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, yeah, India, which was a China exactly. initiative. So
1: India, India's approach is that, as far as Belt and Road Initiative is concerned, it's not a multilateral initiative. And and India has of course raised objections about the sovereignty issue, the fact that China-Pakistan Economic Corridor passes through the Jammu and Kashmir region, particularly the Pakistan-administered part of Jammu and Kashmir region. So India has said that because the line of control between India and Pakistan has not been settled into an international boundary. And therefore, it's a disputed territory. And third parties should not be building anything in disputed territory. So, for example... On China-India you know, border, eastern front, in Arunachal Pradesh, every time the Indian government applies for a loan from the Asian Development Bank or the World Bank for any infrastructure project in Arunachal Pradesh, uh, China objects to it because China says it's a disputed territory and we should not be supporting any funding for project funded by international organization. And similarly, India says that the Kashmir region is a disputed territory, and therefore China should not be interfering in it. But China has gone ahead and done that. So India is not going to be a signatory to the BRI. In fact, President Xi Jinping is hosting the next BRI summit very soon in the next couple of months. And India is not going to attend that summit.
0: Do you think, though, in summary, that the three countries are going to learn to accommodate each other even more so than they have in the past, as opposed to seeing escalation of tensions with each country recognising the imperative of peace, I guess, but also the potential benefits of friendship as opposed to the
1: alternative? Well, see, as far as China... Pakistan India relationship is concerned china does see the economic potential of india's growth story i mean india is like china 20 years ago india is now the rising economic power and given that the latent potential for growth in india is now you know quite substantial Chinese companies and Chinese sort of uh, the rational economic thinkers are looking at India and saying that we need to have good, stable relationship with India. But the question is, is it possible to have a good, stable relationship with India while using the same tactics that China has used in the past as far as China-Pakistan relationship is concerned? Uh, That is going to be the big million-dollar question for China. You can't have both. You cannot use Pakistan, particularly, say, for example, if Gwadar was to become a naval port, of China, India will have to seriously think about its own, you know, naval strategy in the Indian Ocean. So for China, the question is whether China thinks that the strategic gains from having a military relationship with Pakistan are stronger than any potential economic gains from India. Is that the million dollar question?
2: Absolutely, it is, I think, in terms of where it's headed in the future also. You know, you have to see that Belt and Road Initiative is at the very beginning. And a lot of that is going to unfold, not only in terms of information that we have about all these projects, but also where it will be headed and how successful China will be in overall benefits from the project. I don't think China will be able to balance between India and Pakistan in the short run, but I think they have a vision. They have a long-term vision that they have to have... Of balanced relations with both countries and the process will start i think very soon from maybe the next time when the UN Security Council sits and talk about Masood Azhar and and some terrorist groups in Pakistan. And Pakistan has already been given, you know, some signs from Beijing, uh, signals of where the things are headed. And I think next time around, and we'll see when the next UN Security Council session um, is held and when they talk about Pakistan again. But I think that Islamabad knows that it has to change and China, with all this investment, has an upper hand in Pakistan. In many ways, it can still take some decisions that go against Pakistan, but it will still be having the same kind of relationship with Pakistan. So it's not going to break or hurt by China's any decision at the UN Security Council level because both parties, they are mentally prepared for what is about to come.
0: Well, indeed, what is about to come is absolutely fascinating, is an extraordinarily interesting part of the world. An enormous thank you to Zahid and to you, Pradeep, for your insights and your thoughts. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Ali. Thank you, Ali.
0: Our guests have been political scientists, Dr. Pradeep Tanisha from the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne, and Dr. Zahid Ahmed from the Alfred Deakin Institute at Deakin University. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 25th of March, 2019. Producers were Calvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.